Hello and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. I'm Joe Gastineau and sitting opposite me is a mighty fine blogs, uh, Edwin Davis. Hello. Hi there. And how are you doing, sir? Very good. Um, I've been enjoying the snow that we've had recently. Yes, which Um, is now grey slush and uh, mostly unpleasant. It's given me an opportunity to break out my heavy weather boots, which... Are they Timberlands? Uh, yes, I stole them from him. Um, <laughs> they're they're good, but whenever I wear them, I always think that I look like I'm getting ready to murder someone. So in my head, they're my uh, Peter Sutcliffe shoes. Oh, Peter Sutcliffe shoes. But, that but, sounds like a banana rama song. But whenever whenever I used to say that to people, I was wearing it. I would always get it wrong. I'd say they're my Stuart Sutcliffe shoes. Right. Uh, Stuart Sutcliffe being the original basis for the Beatles and Peter Sutcliffe's brother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, not, pe- not a lot of people. Know <laughs> not that. a lot of people do know that. Um, we're going to be talking this week, uh, the theme uh, is Britain, uh, so we'll be talking about uh, all aspects of British cinema and uh, film in Britain itself and what it means to be a British film, if anything at all. Um, and uh, Ed picked the theme this week, uh, do you want to tell us why you picked uh, this particular theme? Yeah, sure. Well, the, the, the impetus for this was David Cameron's statement, which Ooh. he made, uh, Ooh. let's try and be impartial. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm going to play devil's advocate in a minute. You you better be ready for it. Sure. Uh, David Cameron made a statement last month um, about British cinema saying that they need to refocus lottery funding on... Because for those of you who don't know the way the British film industry works, uh, we don't really have a studio system here. So what tends to happen is that the uh, formerly the UK Film Festival, now the BFI... Uh, a lot funds from the national lottery and they they go towards funding our national cinema essentially um and uh what cameron basically said uh was that he wanted funding to be moved away from the sort of smaller um artier essentially i don't i didn't want to say that because you know i think that less commercial less commercial cinema that seems to be the sort of bread and butter of a lot of of a lot of the national cinema of britain these days towards uh more commercially viable films like the king's speech and slumdog millionaire and the in-betweeners full monty things like that and um i wanted to discuss that but i felt it was worth leaving a bit of time because there was quite a knee-jerk reaction to the statement when it was originally made and I kind of feel it's the sort of thing it's such a sweeping thing you can't instantly kind of uh, lodge your thoughts about it in any sort of coherent way and make any sort of meaningful statement on it so I thought it was something that was worth revisiting um, a couple of months or a couple of weeks down the line which which is why we're discussing it now as opposed to sort of a few weeks ago. Uh, Do you want me me to tell you exactly what he said? Yes, go ahead. Um, Because this is it was just an introduction, wasn't it, yeah. uh, to uh, a report that's been done. And in my role as devil's advocate, it was uh, led by a Labour uh, peer, I think, or Labour MP, the report. So um, both sides have got their hands dirty in this one. Um, but Mr Cameron said, uh, the right honourable, <laughs> Mr Cameron said, our role and that of the British Film Institute should be to support the sector in becoming even more dynamic and entrepreneurial helping UK producers to make commercially successful pictures that rival the quality and impact of the best international productions. Now, he he doesn't specifically say that we don't want to fund arty films, Mm. um, but what he is kind of saying is um, we need to back the safe option, we need to back the commercially viable, which seems ridiculous because um, you've got absolutely no way of knowing what's commercially viable or not. I mean, on paper... I think many people have said that, but Slumdog Millionaire does not look like a commercially, uh, you know, a blockbuster hit, which it it kind of massively was. And it also was um, on the verge of being a direct-to-DVD release. Was it? Yeah, the the, the big story about it, when it was nominated for Best Picture, and and obviously it won Best Picture a few years ago, one of the kind of big things people pointed out was that after it had been made, it really struggled to find distribution which is a big problem for british film in general which we'll probably get onto in a minute but it couldn't find distribution so even though it was directed by danny boyle who's you know a a fairly successful uh british filmmaker and beloved um by a lot of people it was looking like it was going to have to go straight to dvd because there was no 
no one wanted to pick it up until eventually someone did and it mm. was a huge success but in a way that and also the king's speech which was a film that really struggled to get funding and get made kind of point out one of the problems with that argument which is you know to quote william goldman nobody knows anything mm. no one knows what's going to be a successful film like before the king's speech came out no one knew it was going to be the second most successful film at the uk box office you know behind harry potter mm. similarly no one could have known when the inbetweeners movie came out which i know you didn't particularly care for but it was a like a monumental that was a it was massive a, hit yeah i mean like, it was only a couple of a couple of million shy of the king's speech wasn't it was, it, it was only it was less than a million right and that's a film that you know i mean the tv series is really you know well liked and mm -hmm. well regarded but it's not on the level where you think that's going to make no. 75 uh, it, made, it made something like 50 million pounds so 75 million dollars off, off 3 million budget which is insane no stars no stars except you know it was based on the sort of the goodwill of the TV series which mm. I don't think anyone had a real sense of no 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 I, th I think um, you're right I mean, we can't you can't predict what is going to be a commercially successful film but where Hollywood does it is by buying a property that there's got a built-in audience so they can kind of be pretty sure it will be a, a big hit, you know, a Lord of the Rings or a Harry Potter or something like that. They know that it's a less risky uh, opportunity. We, we can't, in Britain, match that. We can't, we can't play Hollywood at its own game. And it seems to me that's what Cameron is kind of saying. I mean, he, there are other, other reports elsewhere when he actually did go to... Because this all, this all stemmed from a visit to Pinewood Studios. Yeah, they, made, they released a statement the day before he went to Pinewood and mm -hmm. then the monday after the visit was when he the, the full report was released right and he seemed to be saying that he wanted us to be on par with hollywood mm. whereas um there's just no way we can be because there's only three sustainable film industries in the entire world which are hollywood bollywood and hong kong mm. there's no other film industry anywhere anywhere that i can think of that is a sustainable film industry we we live on the scraps of other countries and we try and kind of do the best we can. And if you look at uh, British film through the ages, you know, there's films there to rival any films that's been made in Hollywood, but it's so difficult to get things made and to get things financed and to uh, compete that I kind of think we shouldn't really bother mm. trying to compete. And it's about kind of forging our own identity. And I think last year we saw a real range of British films. We saw um, a British cinema where The King's Speech and The Inbetweeners, too, um, diametrically opposed films uh, in terms of tone um, were kind of released and they both made similar box office. The budgets were completely different. I don't know how much the King's Speech... I don't think it was that far off from... I don't think it was too expensive, that one. I, don't I, I probably... Somewhere, I think I probably, read somewhere 19 less... million. Oh, wow. Okay, that's quite a lot. But that could be bollocks. I could have just made that up. But, it, you know, it was it was a kind of... a, a quite a lush film to be made. Mm -hmm. uh, but then in between us was a kind of down and dirty... Kind of, I can't imagine there'd be too many uh, salaries there to uh, to pay out. Yeah. Although if they were on a points deal, those guys would be laughing all the way to the bank. Um, but yeah, we had that, and then we also had films like uh, Tyrannosaur and Submarine and Kill List. I mean, all of those were produced by uh, Sheffield's own Warp Films. Yeah. Um, no, Attack the Block wasn't. You didn't mention Attack the Block. I didn't, but Attack the Block <laughs> as well. Uh, all those films, um, they were all successful. Yeah. Um, uh, but I read a very interesting fact, uh, Ed. Do you want to hear my interesting fact? Yes, go on then. Um, do you know, since the UK Film Council started, how many films have repaid their UK Film Council investment? No, how many? Uh, it's currently four. Out of? A lot. Uh, quite a lot. So More than four. M well, we're, we're talking that the UK Film Council would have funded dozens of films every year. Yeah. And the only films that have repaid... 100% of their investment are Man on Wire, the James Marsh film, yeah. and Project Nim is about to do that as well. Yeah. Uh, the St. Trinian's film. Okay. And The King's Speech. Wow. So, as much as I can, I kind of disagree with what Cameron says, just from, on principle, it sounds idiotic. Um, and people say, I mean, the follow-up to that uh, William Goldman quote that no one knows anything is that, he, I think he says it in another book, he says that... Uh, uh, the movie business is fundamentally not a good business to be in if you want to make money because mm. the amount of money, the sums you have to invest are so large and the risk is so high that you've really got to, you know, it's only big people can make a lot of money from it. 
I can also see uh, Mr. Cameron's point of wanting to do that, but uh, is there a middle ground somewhere we can have it? And and does does last year illustrate the middle ground that we've got with? You've got big, successful, crowd-pleasing entertainment like King's Speech and um, uh, in-betweeners, and also the kind of the edgier kind of uh, stuff like uh, Tyrannosaur and and, uh, Kill List. Yeah, well, the the example that leaps to my mind is not from the realm of film, but from television. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 90s, NBC, the network behind many great TV shows, um, many many nowadays that don't get watched by anyone, but um, back in the <coughs> 90s... Community. <coughs> yeah, community, come mm-hmm. parks and recreation, <laughs> all, those, all those wonderful sitcoms they've got that no one watches for yeah. some reason. Um, they had a system whereby they had, like some massive hits in the mid-90s. You know, they had Seinfeld, they had Friends, they had ER, um, they had these, like, these guys, um, also on that whole sort of comedy Thursday block, they had Mad About You, they had these films that were watched by loads and loads of people, and they used that to keep shows like Homicide Life on the Street mm-hmm. going, a show, a series that was viewed by, in those days, no one, I think it still got more than 10 million viewers, which nowadays would make it one of the most watched shows on television. But, you know, in those days, if you got less than 15 million, you were cancelled. Mm-hmm. Um, but they kept it They kept it around because the successful stuff covered the cost of making this, this like, show that was beloved by critics, and so they could use it to kind of... Uh, as as a stick to beat the other networks with, mm-hmm. you know, the ones who are making really derivative cop shows. They say, you know, well, you've got um, NYPD Blue or Law and Order or whatever. Oh, actually, they might have Law and Order as well. But, you know, you've got these shows that no one really gives a shit about, and we've got this show that's, you know, the top of everyone's list of one of the best things that television can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that would be the middle ground, is you put money into the commercially successful, or not commercially successful, but the the stuff that looks commercially viable as long as you just basically say okay all the money that you know that film makes goes into funding these little ones because the little ones are where the um future hits of tomorrow are going to come from because the people making the little films are the people who you know are they're new directors they're untested or whatever and uh, they will go on you know given encouragement given the chance to make a film they'll go on to do something really interesting and I think that that's that's what you have to realise is that uh, you you can't view everything as a profit loss situation. You've got to take the long view and think that okay, Kill List may not have made a huge amount of money, but the next film Ben Wheatley makes or the one he makes after that, whatever, could be a runaway smash, you know, mm. or the next film that you know like Attack the Block wasn't as massive a hit as perhaps its budget would have, you know, the, the people who funded it would have wanted. But the next film Joe Cornish makes, you know, because he's established himself now as a director, could make a lot of money. So I think that's that's kind of the way you've got to view it. You can't just view it based on how each film goes, but you have to sort of f- uh, encourage and foster that talent. Mm, it's a bit... Kind Otherwise, of... what you just end up with is what happens now which is that the really talented directors maybe make one film in England and then go to America. Yeah, I, I think a kind of interesting example is uh, Christopher Nolan, who made his first film following, which was self-funded, um, got attention, got into festivals, and then he went straight to America and got yeah. funding for Memento, and now is... You know, if, if you look about, if you look at what um, a film director wants to do, they want the biggest budget imaginable, and they want full creative control... And he's one of the very few people who is doing that. Yeah. He, he is. He has got full creative control, and, and I imagine, you know, the budget of you know Dark Knight, whatever it is, is yeah. you know pretty big, and and not many people get given that kind of money and that yeah. kind of responsibility. He's someone who, I don't know, he didn't get a chance to operate within that British film system. But there's so many British filmmakers who make one film, and and if it's not very good, never make another film again. Mm. I don't know, it, it seems weird we don't foster the talent in the same way that other yeah. countries do it just seems to be you get a go and then if you don't kind of hit it off you you don't really get another one yeah it seems to be that the people a lot of the filmmakers certainly of, of this last year are people who have got their sort of background in some other other thing other than filmmaking like Edgar Wright last year and obviously Joe Cornish this year you know, um, Richard Aoade, Richard Aoade, or whatever his name is. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
his uh you know they have a background in television yeah. where you know they made really interesting work um you know like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place Spaced um the IT crowd to an extent um you know that that's where they are coming from so they've got their grounding in that and they've been they've their talent has been fostered and, and grown through that someone took a risk on them in another medium mm-hmm. and then they've been able to you know use the goodwill from that in order to go and make make a film you know but if Edgar Wright had tried to get Shaun of the Dead made just you know as a as a regular filmmaker I don't think anyone would have taken a chance on him they'd be just like you know who wants to see a British zombie movie or a, a zombie rom-com a zombie rom-com mm. or Richard Ayoade says you know oh, I want to take this obscure comic novel and uh turn it into an ode to f- new wave cinema <laughs> you yeah know? no one's going to look at that and think yes that's that's uh I, I i trust you that you'll make a good piece of work from this yeah um in terms of what cameron's saying about uh taking hollywood on uh, their own game um there is a bit of a sense of um we've seen this before with um goldcrest in the 80s with, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, do you you, you know Goldcrest? Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, Goldcrest was um, a, a British film studio um, and the big producer there was David Putnam, or Lord oh, Putnam yeah. as he was now. And essentially they kind of uh, produced some films. Bizarrely, they produced um, Escape from New York, which was a massive, massive hit. Um, but they did Chariots of Fire in 82 uh, or 81, I can't remember what it was. I think it was um, 81. And uh, it won Oscars and it was big. And uh, the producer of that film, Colin Welland, uh, made a big pronouncement that the British are coming at the Oscars. You know, the British are coming. And um, Goldcrest then invest. They had Gandhi the next year, I think, which was a, a very big hit. But then they went on to invest a lot of money in kind of lavish productions. Mm. And there was three big ones. There was um, Revolution, which was the film in which uh, Al Pacino... Um, it was a kind of a revolutionary war film. Uh, Al Pacino was in it, and his two sons were played by Sid Owen and Dexter Fletcher. And it was so awful and such a, a such a, a bomb. Um, I think I've got here. It cost twenty eight million dollars, which is massive for the, a film in you know in the UK in in, in the eighties. Yeah. And it took less than four hundred thousand. So, and Al Pacino retired from acting, I think, for four years. Went back to the stage and uh, didn't do another film, I think, until Sea of Love. I'm not, I'm not sure which one it is. Then they did The Mission with Roland Joffe film with uh, Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. That cost $24 million and took 17 another big loss. And then The Absolute absolute Beginners, the Julian Temple film with David Bowie and, um, yeah, Patsy Kensett. Uh, that's, the, that's the film that's responsible for inflicting Patsy Kensett on us. Um, those three films were massive failures. And Goldcrest kind of fell apart. And now I think Gold, Goldcrest only exists as a as a um, an investment kind of go between kind of brokers for films. Um, they also produced Maton, which was my, one of my favourite John Sayles films, and but that again was a was a flop. Um, but it, it, that was that was the last attempt that British film had at taking on Hollywood at its own game, and it kind of failed mm. quite badly. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of successes with Gandhi and Chariots of Fire and things, but. Um, other than that, it was a, it was a bit of a disaster, um, and you know I, I don't want to be the person who says we can't do that, we can't make big films, um, but it, it's it's set up in America to, to 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 take the failures, whereas we're not. Yeah, you have a, a big failure, you can't afford to have another one. I think that also what that kind of points out is that if we are going to try and create a more commercially viable form of, of cinema. The problem isn't the kinds of films being made, but maybe the way in which those films are shown. Because I think, you know, the, the, the thing that everyone always says about British cinema is the problem is, is less getting the films made. Obviously, you know, it's, it's the same as pretty much anywhere. It's almost impossible to get a film made, but, you know, people somehow manage to do it. Mm-hmm. The problem is getting it seen yeah. because distribution in this country is overwhelmingly in favour of multiplexes. There's not really... In the, in the way that there is in America where there's kind of a network of art house cinemas and a really thriving art house scene that can, you know, um, allow films to kind of grow over a period of time. There's not really that over here. You have the multiplexes, you might get a f- something like the showroom in Sheffield, you know, which is a, a small art house cinema that will show a film for like two or three weeks and then, you know, move on to the next thing. They're all kind of geared towards the blockbuster model of how you 
show a film, which is you show it for its first week. If it's not successful, you get rid of it. Mm. Whereas, you know, in America, um, it tends to be more like you open a film in one city, it does really well, you spread it out, and it grows over time. And I think these are the smaller films that the do that. The, films, the bigger yeah. films just go for the shotgun approach. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because the way that the, the modern movie uh, model is set up is that you know films make a third of their eventual gross in their opening weekend. Mm. You know, except in situations where something like you know the last Harry Potter film I think made about half in its opening weekend. But that's wow. its opening weekend was the biggest opening weekend of all time. Mm. So you know that's kind of different or in the case of something like avatar which made a tenth of its opening of its final gross on its opening weekend because that film broke all the rules somehow. and it ran and ran and ran and ran for forever for nearly a year in some cinemas yeah. in the states um i think that's kind of if you want to kind of look at a way of making just the, the cinema that we have at the moment and the cinematic culture that we have at the moment more successful is to try and work on a model that allows people to see these films and which kind of supports them which at the moment we don't really have i think maybe that lies in alternate methods of distribution like i know ken loach in particular has, has really uh leapt on to day and date releasing you know his last film root irish was released on in the cinema and uh you could download it on the same day and mm -hmm. i think maybe that's the sort of thing that you're going to see more of. The, the way to make these films more viable is to try and get them out there to as many people as possible. Um, after the UK Film Council collapsed, um, it moved over to the BFI. Uh, do you feel like uh, UK Films in safe hands there? I do think so, because I think, I mean, one of the things, um, I don't know if you listened to the Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo programme that was aired after the announcement of the closure of the BFI, mm -hmm. they had Steve Woolley, who's um, the producer behind The Crying Game. Um, he directed Stone, the film about Brian Jones. Uh, he's he's a guy who's been around on the UK uh, film scene for a really long time. He also produced, I think, Maiden Dagenham. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, is someone who's always kind of existed outside of that system. He's never really gone to the... UK Film Council for funding because he's never received funding from them, more right. or less. I think he has on occasion, but he's, he's, he's always struggled to kind of get funding through that way. And he was very... Um, indignant's the wrong word, but he was very sort of um, angry at the outpourings of grief about it because he, from his perspective, it was this quite insular community in which, essentially, if you were part of the club, you were pretty much guaranteed to get your film funded, mm -hmm. you know, no matter what happened. I think that maybe, and, and the BFI doesn't seem to have that because it's such a, a broad institution and it's so um, all-inclusive of, of, you know, pretty much all of British cinema, and it's got such a good sense of the history of British cinema because that's a large part of what it does. That I think that it's uh, it is probably a slightly better choice. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, it's going to be difficult in the early going for them to kind of move from being. You know, it's more of an academic kind of thing to actually funding films. Mm. But I think that they are a safe pair of hands to have it, you know, and, and fairly even-handed. So I think they're, they're probably good people to have behind that funding, really. Okay, we're talking about uh, British institutions, and uh, speaking of British institutions, Ed... Um, did you know that uh, erstwhile film critic Barry Norman makes pickled onions? I was not aware. Would you like to try one of Barry Norman's pickled onions? I would. Here you go. That is a hell of a pickled onion. Barry Norman's pickled onions. This podcast is in no way endorsed by Barry Norman's pickled onions. So what makes a film British? Because I, um, I was looking on the BFI's website, actually, um, and going through a kind of list of their top 100 or top 50 British films, and I was quite surprised that there were some films in there that were considered uh, British films, and I wondered kind of where you stood on that. Like, for example, in the top ten of all of, the, all of these were um, The Third Man, mm -hmm. for example, right. which instantly, when someone says it to me, I think that's a British film. But, you know, it's 
uh, is shot in all in Vienna, and it's it, it feels like a, v- a very European film. Yeah. Joseph Cotton and Orson Orson Welles, two Americans. So, what makes that a British film? And I think uh, the, I, I think Time Out had it as their second their second um, best British film mm. of all time behind Don't Look Now, which is another film yeah. which is set mostly in Europe. With two American, uh, one American lead, Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie's uh, British. Yeah, she's British. Um, but yeah, what makes that a British film? I think um, that's kind of from an, a time when it's kind of easier to kind of say if it's funded by British money, then it's probably British. You know? right. I think I think there it's kind of more of a technical thing. But I think in the case of both those, they're based on British source material. Well, I say British source material. The Third Man was written as an original screenplay and then turned into a novel, but mm-hmm. that's by Graham Greene, who's obviously one of the great British novelists. But I think the point of view of um, The Third Man is quite uh, British because although, because even though the main character is someone who starts off very idealistic, you know, Joseph Cotton's character, goes over there to see his friend who thinks, you know, and, and he's someone who doesn't, quite have the experience of the darkness of the world that someone who has just been through world war Two and been on the real receiving end of it has mm-hmm. um the film itself has a very sort of jaundiced view of the uh of particularly of the cold war of the uh the interactions between the various factions who control vienna at that time yeah but also of you know human nature in a lot of ways and i think that feels certainly in the post-war period that feels like a very british approach because you've when your country's been bombed for five years of a six-year war and you've seen all this terrible destruction firsthand it's kind of hard to kind of look at the world around you in a way that's filled with ideally idealism and light Mm. and i think that that's for, for me that's the thing of with the third man that makes it feel really british is its worldview right and do you think that applies uh, to other stuff um, such as Repulsion for example uh, Repulsion I think that one's an interesting one because that is a foreign director coming to Britain uh, in the form of Roman Polanski but again yeah that he very much had a, a very or, and has a very dim view of, of humanity you know he was a, a Jew growing up in Poland in the 1930s his uh, family were you know, they were taken to the camps. Pretty much, his whole family were killed, and he had to survive through the sort of ruins of Warsaw for many years um, before, you know, you know, growing up to be a, a great, if very troubled man. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that repulsion, in many ways, represents that view as well. You know, that sense of isolation and paranoia, but also like the version of Britain that he represents is is one of darkness and sort of social isolation and paranoia as well so mm-hmm. i think that's kind of that that's very interesting in that it's kind of a, what i would consider to be a british worldview actually turned in on britain as mm-hmm. opposed to the third man which is a british worldview turned on you know europe in some ways yeah um is there any other films you can think of that um perhaps were would be kind of surprisingly considered british the ones i saw on the list were um things like um 2001 a space odyssey mm. i mean obviously stanley kubrick made all of his films after a point in england because he couldn't leave yeah um but eyes wide shut doesn't feel like a british film to me or, or full metal jacket or full metal jacket even though that was sh- filmed on the isle of dogs or whatever <laughs> um but they don't feel like british films to me but no. yeah clockwork orange and um what was the other one that was barry on the list barry linden was very much considered a british film what any any particular thoughts on why that would be I think there it's subject matter, maybe. I think Full Metal Jacket, if you transpose that to a different conflict, but it was the same style, mm-hmm. like if that was about World War Two, you know, that could still be, that could still, that could be a British film. It's just the subject matter there. And also, you know, something like The Shining or, or Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, whereas uh, Clockwork Orange feels very much about Britain in the 70s. Yeah. And similarly, you know, Barry Lyndon is about a certain view of sort of the past in a very English pastoral way, even though it's set in France, mm-hmm. isn't it? Uh, Parts of it are set in France. Parts. I've never seen Barry Lyndon. Oh, really? No. Uh, I think that's the one Stanley Kubrick film I've not seen. It's not his best. 
beautiful. Um, I just don't think a hero can be called Barry. No, <laughs> that's pretty. That's I think that's a good lesson yeah. to take away from Barry Lyndon mm-hmm. uh, from someone who's not seen it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't even know what it's about. In in terms of, um, you touched on it with uh, Roman Polanski, an outsider's view of of Britain. Uh, how much does it piss you off uh, to see uh, Hollywood films and their representations of Britain? And do you think that we Americans feel the same about us when we uh, kind of return the favour? I don't think they do. Because there's, there's a bit of an imperial thing going on there, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a colonial thing going on back yeah. there, which we don't really kind of have the other way. But Yeah, I think we, because of the ubiquity of American culture, we have exposure to a lot more different kinds of Americans than perhaps they have exposure to different kinds of British people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you ask for people on the street in England to kind of think of an American stereotype, you'll get a hillbilly, a Texan, an old Jewish man, you know, sort of an L.A. guy with a ponytail. You know, mm-hmm. you'll get all of these images, whereas for Americans, I think a lot of their exposure to us is sort of very middle class, prim and proper people, or chimney sweeps, or chimney sweeps. Those are the two. Those are the two extremes they get. Whereas I think because their exposure to our culture is quite limited, I think it's maybe less so now. Well, I was going to say less so now, but then again, the most one of the most successful British exports in the last couple of years is Downton Abbey, which is about as stereotypical British as you can get. Yeah, and um, speaking of which, Julian Fellow is the creator. Is he the creator of Downton Abbey? Yes. He, um, was very much backing David Cameron's. Um, I know he's a he's been a kind of speechwriter for the Tories for a long time uh, yeah. and kind of vocal. Uh, he might even be in the, the Conservative Party, but I mean, well, he's a he's a peer, is he? Yeah, shitting he's hell, Lord Lord Fellows. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's uh, he was someone who was very supportive of De- David Cameron, but I think it kind of benefits him, doesn't it? Because he's kind of part of he's that. He's part of that club. Yeah, he is the Bullingdon Club. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Um, but you know he has written films that have been successful you know he wrote Gosford Park, Park yeah. which is a very good film about that's actually a very good film of an outsider mm. coming in and looking at Britain because it does it and it's balanced you've yeah. got it's got a real upstairs downstairs feel to it and that yeah. that's a film um made by an american director and it never once feels kind of condescending mm. um which I can't say for many British films made by British people that feel like they're pandering to America, such as uh, Notting Hill, for example, and yeah. uh, you know, which takes place in a, in a London that bears no resemblance to any London I've ever been to. Yeah. Uh, but it, it doesn't have to pander to be successful. I mean, um, for example, I think that the Ardman films um, are very, very British, but they Incredibly so. they they um, travel so well. Yeah. And it's quite a provincial Britishness. It's a kind of a very Lancastrian type uh, uh, or Yorkshire kind of um, last of the summer wine style uh, Britishness. But it seems to strike a chord. More, and maybe because it's got a dog in it. Maybe. <laughs> um, um, but, it, but whereas something like Notting Hill, I, I think that, that a lot of uh, countries feel more comfortable viewing Britain in it for a particular way as a kind mm. of bowler hat wearing kind of toffs. Like Independence Day, for example, is just, I mean, I mean, <laughs> just, I mean, we're only, in, the British are only in it for about 10 seconds, aren't they? But it's, every, every line they say is like, it's the Americans. <laughs> well, it's a bad bloody time. What do they no. want us to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that's, just, it's just kind of ghoulish, really, isn't it? It's yeah. horrible. It's, um, but I, I guess it kind of fills it. A void for yeah. their convenience. We're not talking about great character pieces here, are we? We're talking no. about Independence Day. But that's one of the things as well is that um, I think one of the things that Americans don't quite see as well is is the range of you know dialects and accents that are on display in in England because they tend to go you know you know middle class from Surrey or mm-hmm. whatever you know someone who sounds very prim and proper. Whereas uh, you know if you watch any other kind of like small scale British film you will hear a range of voices you know if you watch any Ken Loach film you'll hear northern accents if you watch any like even Mike Lee films you know you'll hear probably Cockney and stuff like that well I mean it's, it's very true that train spotting was uh, subtitled <laughs> in America uh, and you know that seems quite unnecessary it's not made by you know the, the, the team behind that went Scottish I mean yeah. Danny Boyle's from Manchester it's not as if it's indecipherable it was you know it, it seemed quite silly to me yeah but do people who 
if, who know England from you know upstairs, downstairs, or uh, from hearing Alec Guinness talk in films, you know, you, you think that there's only a certain way, perhaps, that British people are meant to talk. Whereas, you know, the range of, of accents in Britain is quite astounding. And one of the things that I actually quite liked in um, Steven Spielberg's War Horse, which is a film I, I quite like, um, is that there is actually quite a big range of British accents on display. I mean, there's a long sequence in it featuring Toby Kebbell, who is uh, from Dead Man's Shoes and mm-hmm. um, Control, um, in which he talks in, a, in his own sort of natural Geordie accent, which you don't... You know, When I was, I was watching it in an American cinema, <laughs> and I thought it was really weird, because I could tell that all the people in the cinema with me had never heard this odd... Have, have they not seen Alien Autopsy starring Ant and Dec? Um, I not for a while. No, okay. Um, I wonder how that did overseas. I doubt it did well at all. Mm. But that's that's an example of you know trying to you know really pander in mm. terms of you know really trying to go for a commercially successful film. You pick a duo who are successful at being on Saturday night TV and give them the most sort of like thrown together vehicle imaginable, which has got aliens in and is a broad comedy, and you think, oh, that'll sell, mm. and it won't because it's not good. Yeah. Um. Interesting to see that Hammer is making a comeback. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Hammer's back with The Woman in Black. Yeah. Which from, I kind of thought would be terrible, but everyone seems to be saying it's very, very good. Yeah. Uh, are you hearing similar things? Yeah, I'm hearing similar things. I mean, the worst reviews I've read of it has said that it's sort of cliched, but then again, it's... A vic- it's uh, Hammer. <laughs> it's Hammer, but also, you know, the story is a Victorian-era ghost story set in a haunted house, and really... There's not a huge amount you can do with that, and the book it's based on is over twenty years, is nearly thirty years old. So mm. you know, and that the, the, that's the worst thing that's been said about it. But everyone, you know, pretty much agrees that it's quite. I mean, the worst review I read of it was on the AV Club website, which rated it a C, so sort of an average film. Mm. But they still, but in the review they said it's still scary. Yeah. <laughs> For those saying that it was kind of a cheap kind of scary, which you know I think is 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 a probably quite a fair point really based on the trailer yeah do you but think that do you think that hammer is i mean if if that's successful then hammer have got full scope to remake all of their back catalogue essentially i'd hope they'd uh pursue more um interesting fare because they have in um recent years i mean i think this is the third or fourth film they put out under the hammer mm. label they did the remake of let the right one in let me in was was them uh they did was that called, all them or was it i think it was a co- co-production right okay um they did a film called wakewood which featured uh um carsetti from the wire <laughs> right okay. who has a real name aiden gillen aiden gillen yeah mm. featured aiden gillen and that was a a very creepy atmospheric low-budget british horror film about a couple who lose a child and um, they're told that if they go into this particular wood, there's a certain ceremony they can perform to bring the child back to life, and that opens a, a chest of drawers. Uh, not a chest of drawers. A though. chest of drawers? It opens a Pandora's box. Oh, Pandora's box. You know, I've it, got a Pandora's box in my bedroom. <laughs> you know, it causes a, a great deal of trouble for them, and that's quite good. But, um, yeah, I think this one, it's already made its budget back mm-hmm. in America right. uh, in its first weekend, right. which is pretty good going. So I think... Uh, and. You know, if if it continues to do as well worldwide, it'll probably make sort of five times its budget, so they could make another five films with that profit, or another three once they've covered the marketing. Um, and I do think that they would have pretty much carte blanche to do what they would like from that point, and that's good because you know it's Hammer and they're a very they're a British institution. But uh, what I would like to see is them looking at the talent of young British filmmakers, and you know, as as I've said, there is a quite strong genre scene, and, and you know, there are some good horror directors out there coming through the ranks now i think it'd be great if they could draw from that pool and you know try and give those people a chance mm. and see because because i think that's probably the best chance a lot of young filmmakers will get is if something like hammer which you know has a fair deal of money and a great deal of prestige behind it could come along and say you know do you want to have a shot and you're having a shot within a framework yeah, that's that kind of supports and and nurtures. I just kind of hope that it's sustainable, and I think that it's a wise move. I mean, I didn't know that they did those two films, mm. um, but it's a wise move to put Harry Potter in your first breakout hit. Yeah. 
that you know that kind of almost, and it's a it's I presume it's based on the same play Woman in Black that's been running in the yeah. West End for you know I mean, a that, billion in, years. In some ways, that's the closest thing we have to a uh, a Transformers uh, or a Harry Potter is uh, successful West End plays. Really, yes, and I mean I mean it, it, that seems to me a, a sellable property. A lot of people have seen the play. It's it's you know a, a kind of a big deal. So sticking Daniel Radcliffe in it is is a good move. I just hope they can kind of sustain it. Um, Ealing. Um, want to talk about that for a little bit I'd love to see um, Ealing kind of come back um, I was uh, reading the other day about the, the uh, Graham Linehan's done a adaptation of Lady Killers for stage yeah, that apparently is going down things. very very well um, and I look back at the Ealing films I mean a lot of people say Ealing comedies but they didn't just, just do comedies but that's kind of what they're most no, famous they did, for uh, Dead of Night. Dead of Night, which is great. It's an amazing. That's probably. I think that might be one of my my, my favourite British horror films. That's so damn one creepy the, and very British. One of the definitive uh, creepy possessed dummy. Yes. Films ever made. If you only see one film about a creepy possessed dummy. And they also did Went the Day Well, which is a wonderful and so such a strange uh, wartime propaganda film. Mm. Which, uh, uh, who who directed that? Was it David Lean? No, it wasn't David Lean. I think it was someone. I think it might have been um, Alexander Not. McKendrick, who went on to do a lot of the Ealing stuff. Right. Okay. Did, I think he did Lady Killers and Man in the White Suit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that film does feature. I think Thora Heard blows herself up with a hand grenade in that film. Wow! Take one for the team. Yeah, but that's a very that's a very interesting and very British film because it's all it was made during the war. And it's talking about the sacrifices everyone had to make to win it because it starts in the future, essentially. And it's kind of a very British attitude, which is things are bad now. They're probably going to get worse. But right. We might get through it, <laughs> which is the sort of, you know, it's the basis behind that keep calm and carry on poster that everyone has now. You know, it's mm. like, I think that that's a very. But yeah, you're right. Ealing. They excelled at comedies, but they could do other things. Their version of Nicholas Nickleby is uh, very good as well. Um, and I mean, they still exist, but it's mm. as, as a kind of a material studio rather than a kind of producing yeah. uh, kind of house. Do you think that um, British cinema needs something like that? Something that's got a stamp of identity mm. that will always be making films. Uh, that I mean, uh, you look at things like The Full Monty, which I mean, growing up, I, The Full Monty came out, and then it seemed that everyone was after the next Full Monty, and everyone yeah. tried, and and there were so many attempts. Do you remember Lucky Break? The film, I think it might have even been the same team. They tried to do a, a film where it was a group of prisoners uh, led by James Nesbitt who had to put on a play and a kind of ruse to escape and it was supposed to be the next Full Monty. And yeah. It seemed that everyone was chasing the next Full Monty. And or it, uh, Black Ball with uh, Paul Kay. And Vince Vaughn. And Vince Vaughn. Um, uh, how the mighty have fallen. Um, from Black Ball, Black Ball to a Hollywood A-list. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, uh, it, it seemed... Um, that um, those kind of films, something like the Full Money, does quite kind of fit well within that Ealing it's framework. A it's a caper. It's um, it's quite kind of savvy about class, uh, which something like Kind Hearts and Coronets has got to be one of the most kind of uh, kind of satirical looks at class system in in, in Britain. Is, is kind of very biting. Yeah, um, it has that, and I kind of just wish that that was still around that framework and. Um, and that we still had that sustainable thread of films that could be made, and yeah. and, and in Hammer, I don't even it could, because it's genre won't be big enough to to sustain that unless they kind of branch out and do other films. But then again, you know, who's going to go and want to see the a Hammer comedy or a Hammer? You know, it's 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 so ingrained in the, the consciousness that Hammer make horror. Mm. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's something like the, you know the Ealing. The Hammer model is probably the closest England's ever had to someone like you know the Roger Corman school, mm. where you you just basically have someone sort of providing the money and a, and a, a notable stamp, and you just kind of go, right, you know, this is the kind of film that we make, so make the best kind of this film that you want mm. that you can. And I think that's kind of maybe that is something that Britain needs is maybe not a big studio, but a small studio with a very clear identity mm. that can just kind of bring people in and you know say to these like to young talented directors you know you know you can make the sort of film that you want to make but you know just you know bear in mind these you know rules these things that you have to stick to yeah i think that um 
well, just to, to kind of cap this off, I mentioned it before, I think Ardman is probably the only studio, as it were, that mm. is producing regularly that is kind of sustainable because everything they do is a success and they've yeah. got a film out this year. Um, Pirates and uh, Adventure. Adventure with Scientists. Yes. Um, someone told me the other day that they had to cut a leprosy gag out of it. Or yeah, something? there's been a. Uh, they've had to. There's a joke in the trailer where they end up on a boat. The, the pirate captain, voiced by um, Hugh Grant, mm-hmm. uh, gets on board, boards a ship, and it's a leper ship, and you know the leper's arm falls off. And you know it's it's, it's just a typical leper gag, really. You know, <laughs> as as much as you know there are those things, yeah. and the uh, leprosy advocacy groups um, have been up in arms about it and uh, that's a poor choice of words <laughs> must have taken them ages to type the complaint there yeah but you know they, 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 they've said that they're going to they've either changed it or cut it entirely but it's still in the trailer so I think you know it's going to be odd it's going to be an odd way of trying to I mean they can't change it because it's stop motion it'd mm. take them six years yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, is Hugh Grant good or bad for the British film industry Oh, uh, God. I remember someone asking Shane Meadows, would you work with Hugh Grant? And he said, I would, providing I could put him in a shell suit and set him on fire. <laughs> Which is <laughs> um, perhaps a little harsh. Um, yeah, I think he definitely raises the profile. I mean, he's a bankable star, or he was a few years ago. I mean, he's not really been in a film for a while. but um, I can't think of anything. No, I think I think he's the sort of person who is very... He, he is quite a, a good actor, and he's someone who can, you know, bring a lot of attention to a project, but at the same time, his success led to those sort of copycat films. I think the, the success of Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill led to that kind of Richard Curtis style of filmmaking where maybe it may not even be Richard Curtis behind the camera, but everyone tries to do that style of film. Is Richard Curtis good for the British film industry? Uh, I think uh, he's good on telly. <laughs> good good yeah. for the British television. Industry. I can't quite believe that he gets the kind of plaudits he does. Mm. Because, I mean, yes, he's done some kind of sterling work on television. But have they not seen Notting Hill? Notting Hill is, is, is like, so repellent. You get what well, I don't understand why he's so revered when he kind of sells Britain out quite also, as badly as he does in Notting Hill. Notting Hill is, is just a horrible, kind of detestable piece of shit that I, I just absolutely hate. And, and I, I say this, and people are like, "Well, it's not for you. It's a kind of uh, you know a chick flick or whatever. It's horseshit. It's horrible. It's it's. I mean, if I was a woman, I would throw myself out of a window rather than watch that film. It's it's demeaning. It's racist." And it would give you cancer. All those things are true. He's yep. also behind the Bridget Jones films, which also give you cancer. So yeah, I think he has. A, he's got a lot of marks against him. He has. What's he got on his favour? Blackadder. The last. The, that last bit of Blackadder. Yeah, Blackadder four, episode six, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, Return of the Jedi. Yes, he directed Return of the Jedi. <laughs> um, and he was the lead singer in Joy Division. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, he did The Vicar of Dibley, which is all right. It's quite a nice, gentle show. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he's got some good film credit. I mean, he, he, you know... The Wars Boat That Rocked. A, huh? The Boat, boat that, rocked. that Rocked. Love Actually. Oh. Um, I think Love Actually might be worse than Notting Hill. Because it starts think, with that thing about September the 11th, yeah. which is just... it's Yeah, I mean, for those of you who haven't seen it, he basically says... What, September 11th? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen September the 11th. <laughs> I know what happens. Um, uh, he says that um, it, when cool. people uh, were on the planes about to crash into the towers, they, they yeah they phoned people up and told them they loved them. They didn't ring up and say, you owe me 50 quid, or like, you know, I slept with your mum. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. not what, yeah. Uh, I mean, someone who starts a film with that gambit really has very, very little you know, rig- wiggle room with me, yeah. uh, kind of critically, artistically, or morally. So he's a prick. You fuck off. <laughs> um, so I yeah, know, I like bits of Love Actually because it's such a big ensemble thing. Some stuff, good stuff's going to fall through. I do think Emma Thompson's performance is very. Who is she in that? Is she? She the... is the one who's married <laughs> to Alan Rickman, um, and uh, yeah, so she's she's basically spent a lot of it listening to Joni Mitchell and crying. Because um, that's what women do when they're upset. When they're upset. <laughs> but no, it's a very, it's a very good performance by her, and it's quite heartbreaking. 
but you know that doesn't isn't Laura Linney in it as well? Yes, oh. Laura Linney's in it. Yeah, um, I think playing British. I think she might be playing British in it as well, hmm. rather than America. I, I don't think she's one of the token Americans in it. Right. Um, it also soils a very fine memory of the Muppets in Love Actually because there's a bit where they have uh, it's a Chiwetel Ejiofor's wedding. And they have like a choir where one voice starts singing, and then Mala-mana. then multiple <laughs> multiple voices start swimming uh, singing, which is actually based on something that was done at Jim Henson's funeral, where um, all the Muppet performers started doing a song, uh, which is it's all about you know sort of people coming together and you know sort of a sense of love, and you know it's as a tribute to you know Jim Henson and just kind of like so Richard Curtis killed Jim Henson, yeah, now. pretty much unbelievable. But also, it was, it was he got that because he was at Jim Henson's funeral, and she's oh. kind of like, "How dare you show your face there after what you did?" Yeah, <laughs> it was un- you, unbelievable. Pneumonia. <laughs> Richard Curtis gives puppeteers pneumonia. That sounds yeah, like a, an actor's first. vocal warm-up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Richard Curtis and Hugh Grant, bad, yeah. bad for the British film industry. Bad. They bring in money, but they also lead to terrible copycats. I don't think they're bad in all of themselves. In the same way that, you know, Jaws and Star Wars aren't bad because they led to Transformers, you know, to Dark the Moon, but they started trends that led to those things. So, mm. you know, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's interesting that of the kind of trends of British cinema that, you know, you think of, you know, the, the two main ones are, you know, your Merchant Ivory, period pieces, adaptation of Dickens novels, and the other half is, you know, gritty, low-budget social realism there's one trend which seemed to be really really prevalent for about 20 years and then completely died away which is kind of the great big evocative british fantasy mm-hmm. most brilliantly done by um powell and presberger things like matter of life and death red shoes tales of hoffman um those guys kind of existed on their own plane really didn't they yeah but they they they, they also they're clearly an influence on someone like ken russell who again existed on his own plane but there just seemed to be something about the British film industry that allowed those people to exist, which doesn't seem to be around anymore. Do you think that Brazil has got a lot to do with that? Do you think? Because was that the last of the of those kind of films, the the yeah. kind of the British fantasy? Yes, I think so. And that film, you know, had a, a very troubled life. Obviously, it's a great it's a great piece of work, but it you know had a very troubled existence. Didn't make a lot of money. <laughs> I think that's the reason why that maybe that is the reason why people aren't willing to sort of invest that sort of money anymore or maybe something like you know Excalibur the John Borman film you know mm. the sort of films that cost a lot didn't make a lot of money um, but I think it's a shame that there, there doesn't seem to be a way of people to realise those things anymore I, th- I, th- I think that kind of stems a lot from the fact that Powell and Pressburger and Ken Russell were real once in a lifetime filmmakers yeah. they were um you know they were kind of generational quirks mm. i mean Powell and pressburger made a string of films which something like peeping tom yeah which is obviously not pressburger just pal um is is a very british film yeah um but it's also uh, a very uh difficult film mm. and obviously it was uh had had its problems, should we yeah. say? It was sick filth, yeah. and uh, it wasn't until much later, until after Powell had died, that it, it kind of saw the light of day again. Yeah. Um, um, and I think that yeah, those they kind of fit a mould um, of their own making. And uh, something like a matter of life and death, I don't really think there's. I mean, if I was compiling a list of the the, the best British films ever made, um, which I didn't do for this. Uh, Perhaps we should have done. That would have been interesting. But that would always be up there. And that's a film that, you know, I I don't think... we've mentioned a few of them over the course. I don't think I'd choose to throw it on on a Saturday night, but all you have to do is watch it and and just admire the the sheer kind of artistry. My my favourite bit of it, and I think this says just so much about Britain in general, there's a bit when David Niven is out having a picnic with uh, the lady, who I name, I can't remember, and... A guy approaches, dressed as what can only be described as like a 16th century French duke. And David Niven just looks at him and goes, hello. 
and that's it. He doesn't say, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> You're dressed like a French duke and it's 1942 or whatever. He just says, hello, and just goes back to his thing. It's just such a British way of dealing with a 15th century French duke yeah. at a picnic. This is important just to be unflappable. Yes. And not only that, but the 16th century French Duke has stopped time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I, I, yeah, I mean, those films, I I think those films probably could be made. I just, Mm. I just, they're just so uh, kind of original. I just don't see who's going to do them. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it now that if I were to compile a list of the best films ever, I think at least five of them would be by Palin Pressburger. Yeah. Because you've got Black Narcissus, Red Shoes, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which may be my favourite of theirs. Red Shoes Diary. Red Shoes Diary. Yeah. Um, Life and Death of Peter Sellers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, like, you know, they they had just a, such an astonishing run. And Ken Russell as well, you know, was a a singular talent. You know, there's hard, there really isn't anyone like him. I mean, the closest you get is there's that famous story about how Ken Russell, I think, was... Um, he was walking through the streets of London and somewhat a car stopped and this man ran out and grabbed him and it was Federico Fellini. <laughs> and he grabbed up to him and says, he went to him, Ken Russell, where I come from, they say I'm the Ken Russell of Italy. Wow. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, that That really is his only contemporary, is, you know, this like Fellini. Man, yeah, Fellini, that, you know, there's hardly anyone in the whole spectrum of British cinema that compares to him. I think it's a shame that may, maybe, you know, that strain of cinema was not, never prevalent but it's the same that there's no one like that now really i mean there's no one in the british film industry who has that scope or if they do they'd leave Ter- <laughs> terence davies yeah but he makes so few films oh. <laughs> it's hard to tell as i say i think you know the closest you might get is i don't know maybe someone like uh, shane meadows in a different way in that he can he makes entirely the films that he wants to make. Mm. They're not elaborate, you know, evocative fantasies, but they are distinct and uh, idiosyncratic works that don't really fit into what anyone else is doing, Mm. even though they have recognisable kind of like uh, conceits or concepts in terms of what other British cinematic works have done. Mm. Here's a question. Okay. What's the worst British film you've ever seen? Worst, ah, oh, there's so many. I really, really, really didn't like Ned's the Peter Mullen film. Wow, I mean, that's Scottish. I don't know. It's <laughs> part of Britain, that is. Is it? Last time I looked. Uh, well, give it a few weeks. Mm. Uh, <laughs> comment will be uh, prescient. Topical. Topical. It's like um, watching a repeat of oh, I got news for you on Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. I, I really didn't like that one. That one felt to me like the absolute nadir of sort of British mid- miserabilism and just like, you know, when when things can't get worse, they do. What about the spectacular misfires? I'm thinking your, um, your body shots, the the Michael Winner film. And if, for those who aren't familiar with body shots, no, parting shots it's parting called. Shots. The, those who aren't familiar with parting shots. Um, Chris Rear. <laughs> erstwhile M.O.R. Geordie uh, finds out he's got terminal cancer and decides to kill everybody who's wronged him and because it's Michael Winner and he's got so many high profile friends he calls them all in for a favour and the only two people I can remember on it are Michael Caine and Michael Felicity, Caine. Felicity Kendall and there, there's loads more yeah. that rear wax I mean that's a pretty bad film Bring Me the Head of Mavis Davis <laughs> with Rick Mayle that's a terrible... That's got Daniello in it from uh, from Do the Right Thing. Oh, God. Um, uh, I don't know if it qualifies as being a British film, but the Guy Ritchie film, Swept Away, yeah, is pretty terrible. Celebrity Rape Island, as I like to call it. <laughs> it is absolutely bafflingly poor. Um, but, yeah, there's so many... Like you mentioned Three and Out earlier. Three and, out, and, and Sex uh, Lies and the Potato Man. It's, it's really bad comedies. That's kind of the, one of the big things, is when people try to make... Uh, Broad. I think there's one called The Amateurs. Was that from a few years hey, ago? Hey, I know someone who is in that. Really? Yeah. I'm friends with them on I'm Facebook. Afraid. Yeah, it's not. It's not right. Um, but then you also you get the other end of the scale. You get something like you know Franklin, the uh, completely uh, bewildering science fiction film which takes place on multiple layers of existence. Has that got Ryan Philippe in it? Yes. Right. I think well, I know. He's like a, a masked figure. It was most notable because it came out I think about two weeks before Watchmen did. 
Right. And they were the only thing that was notable about it was it also featured a masked vigilante. Right. Um, and in, in that one, part of it takes place in the real world, and part of it takes place in this big dystopian thing. And the, the design of it is interesting. It's a very well designed film. It's got a very dark city feel to it, but it's just bullshit. It's a really boring film. Mm. I think that's a really good example of Misfire because it, it does so much stuff that British film doesn't do. <laughs> yeah, it does it all completely wrong. Um, I'm going to throw one out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Human Traffic. Um, I remember watching that at university and I remember think I, I in fact, I saw it at the cinema and I remember thinking... That film was brilliant. The guy, the guy quotes Bill Hicks. It's amazing. It's really. And then I watched it at university, um, and with two kind of massive kind of pill heads, and they were like, "Oh, I love that because I can relate to it." And I just watched it. And I thought, "I'm so glad I can't relate to that film <laughs> because everyone in it is a massive twat." <laughs> I mean, there's just so many. All, all those gangster films. Remember when Guy Ritchie? Uh, yeah. made his uh, I think, stamp I think of that lot you know you, you get one really great film that which is Sexy, Sexy Beast, Beast which is amazing primarily for uh, Ben Kingsley Ben Kingsley's performance which is just you know astonishing and uh, sadly unrivaled by pretty much anything he's done since he's Sir like, Ben Kingsley Sir ben yeah Kingsley. he has to call him Sir Ben Kingsley um, yeah but yeah there's loads of them um but um, while we're talking about um, bad British films, unless you've got any more, uh, those were the one, the only ones that really leaped to mind. Right, that's I'm sure there are there are way oh, more. There's, than that. There, oh, there are, but they're just not they're just not coming yet. But while we're I'd talking, block them out. Yeah, I would. Um, while we're talking about, it, I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of undiscovered mm. um, British gems. Uh, and the first one I'd like to talk about that uh, I'm I saw last year. Um, which I think is a remarkable piece of work for a British film. I think it ticks all those boxes um, that a British film should. Is it innovative? It's funny. It's original. It's uh, very British. Uh, it's a film uh, called Skeletons. Uh, have you seen it? I have. I, I, I love that film. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, for those of you who don't know, it's by a director called Nick Whitfield, who, as far as I know, hasn't done anything since. No, he hasn't. Um, and it's Happy. essentially the, the, the story of two exorcists, uh, who go from house to house, from case to case, um, exercising skeletons which are appropriately kept in people's cupboards <laughs> using kind of uh, unexplained equipment and methods with which to uh, exercise such uh, dark demons. But uh, one of the guys, one of the exorcists, the kind of uh, the more cynical of, of the pair, um, becomes addicted to using the technology which is never explained, and I think uh, at one point they just use like pebbles, isn't it? Just pebbles yeah. that drops in and out of your hand to kind of delve into people's uh, memories and stuff. He uses it to uh, explore his own painful memories. And it's uh, very much a kind of like a junkie getting a drug dealer getting hooked on his own kind of junk, as it were. Um, and I thought that film was absolutely remarkable. Um, and I think it got nominated for BAFTA last year, but didn't win as like, yeah. for, like best breast newcomer or whatever. Yeah. Uh, whatever kind of award they have, but didn't win. And um, that, to me, is a film that... I mean, it was depressing when I went to look up uh, what the guy's done since, and he's got nothing. And it's depressing to me that a film can be made like that and it not be recognised as being worthy of developing that talent and, and being followed up. Yeah, especially because there was quite a big... Outcry is not the right word, but there was quite a lot of support behind it because it was the sort of thing which had a very small release and got such good press. I mean, Mark Kermode was one of the people who really sang its praises on his radio show. And Jason Isaacs, who plays the character of the Colonel in it. Oh, amazing. Glorious moustache. Mm-hmm. Um, and an ama- a great flat cap. Yeah, great yep. flat cap. He he really went to bat for that film um, to the extent that he, he pretty much went to every screening of it mm. in the country. And this is Jason Isaacs, who is... He's not in need of a few quid. Yeah, he's, he's, he's Lucius Malfoy. He's in the. But yeah. that and and skeletons. And this is you know I'm I'm not disparaging the film at all. But it looks like it was made for fuck all. Yeah. And um, you, you can feel the budget, not in a negative way, but it looks like you know what it costs essentially. Um, and for a, a someone like that who is kind of British A-list, as it were, to A be in it and B support it so much, yeah. it's pretty amazing. It was really heartening just to kind of see that the way that. You know, cinemas would you know say that they were going to start screening it, and he he would just be like, "I'll go there and do a Q and A." He's just like, "Really? Yes, because I really, really believe in this film and want people to see it." And you know, that's really heartening. 
and I think that was one of the main reasons why it ended up being shown at the showroom here. Sadly, we didn't get Jason Isaacs, but because there was such a a groundswell of support for it, and you'd think that that would you know translate into future. I mean, maybe the guys you know working on stuff, and he's just you know scrabbling to get the money together. But mm. you think you'd, you'd kind of hope that having a film that was really warmly embraced and was yeah. such a, a kind of a core celeb would you know get more. Would, would make things a little easier. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, even if it didn't make a whole deal of money, which I, yeah. I can't imagine it did, no. critically it was very well regarded. You know, if you're looking at the films that are released in the last three years in Britain and, and kind of putting the ones that were critically well received at the top and the ones that were interesting, then his his would be up there. Why has mm-hmm. he not been, you know, given some more money to work with? I mean, we don't know what's going on. I'll give him a ring. Yeah. Um, on a side point, uh, I was out in Manchester before Christmas um, and I was in uh, a bar in Salford, and I saw, I'm going to you know, say, I don't know the guy's name, he's the really tall guy in Skeletons of the pair of uh, exorcists, and I recognised him as the guy. I'd seen Skeletons three days before this, <laughs> and I, I said to my friends that um, I think that's the guy from Skeletons, and they were like, they hadn't seen the film, they hadn't heard of the film, um, and I, was, I wasn't really 100% sure. But I, th- I thought it was. Um, later in the night, they were out having a fag, and he was out there as well. So one of my friends said, were you in a film called Skeletons? And he was so embarrassed at being recognised that he ran away. <laughs> and then, later on in the night, he, he kind of came back in the bar, and he was with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend had clearly been told that he'd been recognised. And he was really embarrassed, but she was kind of goading him on. And as the night kind of uh, went on and on and on, she kind of goaded him into coming over to me <laughs> and asking if I wanted my photo taken with him. And I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he just said, look, I've, I've never been asked to have my photo taken with anyone before. Uh, and I really made his day, and I've got the photo on my phone. Oh, um, but nice. yes, uh, I'm, it's good that you can... I, that was me supporting the British film industry. Um, seeing the film that I borrowed off someone, didn't pay for, <laughs> and recognising him in a bar in Salford and embarrassing him highly. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that's about everything we've got. On yeah. British film, um, anything else you hear about British film is wrong. We've <laughs> we've, we've said it, off. it. We've covered it off. So don't even bother talking to us about Steve McQueen uh, or you know any of those chances that are on on the uh, on the scene today. Um, so yeah, that's it from me, uh, and that's it from Ed. Bye bye.